coming to you from Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York, the ancestral and occupied territory of the Seneca. This is out of the rehearsal hall. In our second season, we're taking a deep dive into the theatrical process, even while we are still creating work from the rehearsal halls in our own homes. This season might find you listening to audio plays, streaming a solo performance online, and attending the theater in a new, socially distant manner. And in this podcast, we'll explore it all. My name is Jenny Werner, and I am Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Just like last season, each episode will feature a stage manager's favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by Jiva staff and artists and scholars from around the country for a conversation out of the rehearsal hall. Welcome, everyone. We are met. Please let's circle up for our meet and greet. Today, I'm joined by Esther Winter, the creative producer for Recognition Radio, an audio play festival celebrating Black stories. Esther, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So uh, you've been so active in the Rochester theater community as a performer and as a director and as a teacher. Um, And our Jiva's audiences have seen you in readings and workshops and last season in our production of Lacage. And of course, your daughter has also performed on Jiva's stage in A Christmas Carol for the last couple of years, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you've performed all over town and you have a family and run a business. How do you do it all? Well, when you say it all at once like that, it sounds like a lot. Wow. Okay. It is a lot, Esther. I guess it is. I guess it is. Um, well, first and foremost, having a very supportive husband who holds down the fort at home while I'm doing all my things is very helpful. So thank you so much, John. Couldn't do it without you. And honestly, I love it. I love all of it. I love the opportunities I've been given. And I love, I lo- I've loved having the opportunity to work with so many wonderful artists here in Rochester. Um, I mean, when you love what you do, you just make it work, right? That's so true. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the business that you own is, say something about your business. Sure. It's called Canal Side Music Together. So um, it's an international early childhood music education program. And I I basically own, if you you will, a franchise of it. Um, My center is located in Pittsburgh, New York. I've been in business for, wow, 17 years now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, long time. <laughs> Can't believe it's been that long. Um, we the program basically teaches babies how to sing, and we do that by encouraging their most important teacher to sing along with us, which is their parent or caregiver. So we sing and we dance and we play instruments, and all the songs and chants are in a particular. Uh, it's a very strict curriculum. The kids think they're just having a good time, which we are, but everything that we are doing is uh, is very. Uh, it's very, um, it's, it's in a construct uh, that will encourage children to uh, sing in uh, accurate pitch and keep accurate rhythm. We basically teach you how to work your own instrument, which is your body and your voice, because you can't really learn a secondary instrument until you learn how to, to work that instrument first. Wow. I, I think I could use that kind of class. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's the, the secret about the whole program is it, we public, you know, we advertise it for the children, but it's really for the parents. It's yeah. really to teach them 
and it doesn't matter if you can sing on key or keep an accurate rhythm because your children won't remember. One of the things we love to say to our parents is your kids won't remember that you sang off key to them, but they will remember that you sang. Mm -hmm. So open your mouth and sing. They really don't care. They're just going to love it because they see you doing it first. So that's great. That's great. I could have used that when my 14 year old was a baby. Okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway, enough about that. Um, <laughs> so we're all excited at Jiva to be working with you in this new role as creative producer of this radio festival. So let's talk a little bit about recognition radio. Yeah. I uh, was just remembering uh, the day that the that we came up with the title for the festival, which I think was your idea. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about um, what we were trying to capture with that title. Sure. So, you know, I felt that it was important that the word recognition be in the title because work from Black artists and Black playwrights is overlooked many times. And with this title, Recognition Radio, we're able to convey that this rich, multi-layered, celebratory collection of work has always been there, right? These artists have always been working on their craft. And it's really exciting with this festival to have the opportunity to shine a light on their work and to recognize their work. And it's time for more people to hear these stories. Yeah. It's just, it, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm excited too. And all of the playwrights whose work we're featuring, I absolutely adore. The festival will feature four plays written, directed, designed, and dramaturged by Black theater artists. The four plays are Feeding Beatrice by Kirsten Greenidge, The Bleeding Class by Chisa Hutchinson, we Are Continuous by Harrison David Rivers and The Resurrection of Michelle Morgan by Christina Anderson. I'm so excited about them all. And our audiences can find out a lot more about the plays at recognition-radio.com. And they'll also have some access to some other really great programming. So it's not just the plays themselves. Can you share, Esther, a little bit with our audience about what some of those ideas are that we've been talking about? Yeah, so this is going to be a multidisciplinary festival, and we are thinking as outside of the box as possible to provide insular content that will enhance and complement the audio play experience. So some of those ideas include a visual, I'm sorry, a virtual art gallery, uh, a virtual campfire ghost story event, um, an opportunity to share a craft or an activity that any of our audience members may have picked up during the pandemic, um, community conversations on topics connected to the plays we've chosen, um, a possible book club, and possibly a screening event of some sort. So all of that is in the works. Um, and all of the, um, the content, as I said, will be complementing the plays that we've chosen. And so exciting that these are all things that people can access from the comfort of their homes um, yeah. for the most part, which is, you know, I think really important, especially right now, trying to continue building community and doing theater, but doing it safely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a really great way to stay connected and stay safe, just as you said. Right. 
Well, today we wanted to kick off the second season of Out of the Rehearsal Hall by looking at the history of Black radio drama. And we're thrilled to have with us as our first guest, Sonia D. Williams, professor of media studies at Howard University. I came across Professor Williams through her 2015 book, Word Warrior, a biography of Richard Durham, who was a pioneering African-American writer and producer of both radio drama and television and who we'll talk about in greater detail shortly. Throughout her professional career, Sonia D. Williams has served as an educator as well as a multi-award winning writer and producer of features and documentaries for National Public Radio, Public Radio International, the Smithsonian Institution, and local radio stations throughout America. Also, she has served as a media trainer and writer in South Africa and the Caribbean. For three consecutive years, Williams received one of the American Broadcast Cable Industry's most prestigious honors, the George Foster Peabody Award for significant and meritorious achievement. She was also honored for her role as a writer and producer for the NPR and Smithsonian Institution's series, Wade in the Water, African-American Sacred Music Traditions, the NPR series, Making the Music, and the PRI Smithsonian Institution's series, Black Radio, Telling It Like It Was. In addition, Williams Howard University students received the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award recognition, nicknamed the Poor People's Pulitzer, for their documentary special, In Touch, AIDS in the African-American Community. More recently, her students' work has been featured on Sirius XM's HBCU Channel 142. Professor Williams holds an MA in Broadcast Management from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Currently, she serves as Professor and Interim Chair of the Howard University Department of Media, Journalism, and Film in the Kathy Hughes School of Communications in Washington, D.C. Her research interests include concerns about trends in mass communications, as well as African-American history and culture. Shall we call Sonia? Yes, let's call her. Is there any reason not to do this? No? Then please stand by. So, Sonia, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So we wanted to, I want to start talking about your work in general. Um, how how did it come about? I'm sure this is a question you've answered before, but how did it come about that you got interested in media and in radio in particular? <laughs> well, I, I grew up in the media capital, so New York City is not exactly shy about um, leading the country uh, in many ways. And, you know, of course, many <laughs> is not um, in the media world. So mm -hmm. growing up in New York City, uh was really phenomenal. Um, mm. I mean, you know, you don't know it at the time, but as you get <laughs> older, it's like, wow, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. Absolutely. So radio was something I always listened to. And of course, if you're a teenager or preteen and Motown is the, the, the music of our lives, along with you know, the Philadelphia sound and stacks and, you know, that whole thing in the 60s. Um, Radio was was 
was a love. Um, but also because I was in love with music and, um, and I started uh, playing music when I was in junior high school. So uh, even though it wasn't popular music, I, <laughs> I, I played the oboe. And it was not a choice that I um, uh, consciously made, but I, for some reason, I, I wanted, I fell in love with the clarinet and I wanted to play the clarinet. And so my um, junior high school band leader said, mm, we have plenty of clarinets and we're all out of them. So, but <laughs> there's this other woodwind instrument that's like a clarinet and it's called an oboe. I'm like, what is an oboe? <laughs> he said, <laughs> you'll be great at it. And so... <laughs> I, I, like a dummy, I was like, yeah, okay. And, um, and I, I really, I fell in love with it, started taking lessons and played it all through high school, college and, and beyond. Wow. That's great. Do you still play the oboe? No. And my friends are like, you better whip that thing out of the closet. And start <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, every now and then I, I threaten to, and I, or else I'll bring it out. The problem with the oboe, um, and it's not really a problem, but it, it is what makes it unique. Is It is like the bassoon, a double reed instrument. Uh -huh. And oboists go around with reeds in their mouth for a good reason, <laughs> because <laughs> if you get a good reed, you have to you know, cherish it. And it, if you make your own reads, which is what I did, um, it, it's no joke. It, it takes a while. Um, so no, and I haven't found a, a place to get good reads yet. Cause I'm, I'm not going to sit down and make it at this, at this point. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you talk so fondly about your, um, being raised in New York city. What experiences do you value most from your childhood there? That's a hard question. That's almost like saying, what, what's your favorite child? <laughs> um, okay, let me, let me say that, that uh, I really have to credit my parents because they supported both myself and my brother in whatever we were interested in. And my mother and her, uh, her sister and her friends were cultural fanatics. I mean, they, if there was something cultural going on in New York City, we were there. Hmm. Even if we didn't want to be there. <laughs> so, right. And it's just like, oh, come on, the zoo again? <laughs> or the botanical gardens? Who wants to see a bunch of flowers? But <laughs> between that and going to Shakespeare in the Park, I mean, we were regulars at Shakespeare in the Park. Um, we were regulars at dance concerts, at, at um, concerts, uh, you know, around the city that were age appropriate, of course. Um, so the culture aspect of New York, um, you know, you can talk about it broadly, but really when you get down to the granular, granular level and looking at kids growing up, um, if there was something cultural going on in the city, our parents made sure that we were there, whether it was a museum or whatever. So I really, you know, now in retrospect, see that that <laughs> helped to create the, the person that I am today. That's incredible to have parents who are ready to like take you to everything. Uh, that's so important. Yeah. 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 And, and so, um, you left New York City. You, um, you, you're a teacher. You're a professor. How, um, how long have you been teaching, and what got you started with that? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I've been teaching a long time, and uh, it would is now actually over thirty years. Mm. 
But um, I had said I never wanted to be a teacher um, because music was going to be my profession. I didn't know what I specifically I wanted to do in music. But by the time I got to college, I was a music major in theory and composition. I wanted to write music. Um, and I didn't necessarily see myself. I mean, I, I, I was also going to continue to play, but I didn't see myself going the classical route and playing in an orchestra. Um, it, 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 I, I wasn't sure. And of course, if you're a musician and if you're not playing in a professional organization, you're teaching and you mm. might even be teaching while you're playing. Right. I could not see sitting or standing in front of um, junior high school, high school <laughs> kids um, and, and helping them learn how to play in tune. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it takes a special kind of person to I do that. Think you're right. And <laughs> I, I was like, oh, heck no. As much as I <laughs> love some of my um, teachers, I did not see myself as a teacher. But what, what happened was I, um, when I went to grad school, um, I got a taste of what it, you know, what it could be in teaching as a teaching assistant. And even before grad school, I, I think when I was in undergrad, I did some, you know, you, you look for all kinds of work when you're an undergraduate student. And I got a teaching assistant um, job at one of the high schools. And even that little bit of time that I spent there, I was like, you know, this is kind of cute. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'd want to be responsible for a classroom full of students, but to help a, stu a, a professor, a teacher, that that's kind of fun. Um, and then when I went to grad school, I was a teaching assistant and I, I saw the other side at the, the college side. Um, but it wasn't until I got my first job after college, after grad school, that teaching really, um, really hit me like, oh, this is this is something I could fall in love with. And mm -hmm. what happened was um, what I wanted to do when I finished grad school was to own and or manage a radio station. Mm. Um, because again, radio had become my love. Right. And so um, one of the opportunities that came up was at this small um, uh, HBCU college in Florida, in Jacksonville uh, in particular. And they were beginning to establish a mass communications program there. So they needed someone to come in and help them uh, get it off the ground because it, it was there, but it was, you know, kind of helter skelter. And um, the other thing that attracted me to it is that they were creating a radio station, <laughs> a campus station. Uh -huh. So I'm like, here it is. Okay, well, this teaching thing, uh, whatever, whatever, that's cool. <laughs> but here is a chance to build a station from the ground up, even mm -hmm. if it's a college radio station. Mm -hmm. And um, But teaching was the main responsibility, and this radio uh, uh, development was on the side. And as I started teaching, I really fell in love with it. It was like, you know, I get as much from the students or got as much from the students as they hopefully, you know, took from me. And uh, so that really did it. That that convinced me that this teaching um, profession is 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 really exciting. OK, um, so you are um, currently teaching at Howard, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how long have you been? How, how long have classes been in session? 
This is hallelujah, the end of the second week. <laughs> you made it through week two. Congratulations. Thank you. And how are you doing in this new reality of teaching? How is it going so far? Well, um, you know, that's a good question. It is, um, it's a half a dozen of one and, and a half a dozen of the other. It's, it has opened up new possibilities, but it's also a challenge. I think if you talk to any professor, even professors who have taught online um, before we had to go online, um, <laughs> they will tell you that we're, we're all probably working harder and longer than we did when we were in person. Yeah. Um, because it's another dynamic and you have to prepare differently. Then when you're in the space or the online space, it's a whole nother uh, approach. The thing that is interesting about this, this semester so far anyway, and we're only talking about two weeks and students are still trying to register and get their classes straight. So we're not really settled yet. But um, in March, when we all had to transition immediately from in-person to online, it was traumatic because, you know, we're used to seeing and, you know, being able to get visual cues right right there from students. And then that went away. Um, now, um, I was really apprehensive about going into a classroom with students I didn't know um, and, you know, had no real sense of. There are a few who I might have had in other classes, but for the most part, they're all new students to me. And the connection that you tend to make personally, even if it's a group of people, you know, there's eye contact, there's body language, and you don't get, you get the eye contact, maybe, <laughs> put the camera on, but, um, but the, the, the other cues that you get, the physical cues, you don't really um, have access to. And then how they meld as a class together is a whole nother way when you're looking at a bunch of squares on a screen versus actual physical bodies in a space. So it's been a, it's been an adjustment, but I must say that, and I think this is, it'll be interesting to hear what my colleagues say, you know, a month from now, is that I think because many of our students have been home with mom and dad <laughs> or with family, <laughs> and um, because internships and jobs, um, I won't say totally went away, but a lot of them did, mm -hmm. um, here's an opportunity for them, one, to get back in touch with their friends and their colleagues. And two, to have something to do. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they complain about the amount of work. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's gonna come too. But um, but it, it is it is a different dynamic. And I think we we kind of one of the things about this pandemic is that uh, I think it's really bringing out the whole idea of how much we get from each other in person. Mm. And when you don't have that, or when you're forced to um, do it virtually, it's, it, it is a major adjustment and some people really have a hard time. Adjusting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it'd be very hard for people who need to be around other, other people to be in this situation. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. 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 Certainly one of the things that, that, you know, we're finding as a theater is that it's impossible um, really to do our, our, the work that we normally do, um, you know, where, audiences sit together in the dark in a room and 
you know, connect, um, breathe the same air as each other and as the performers. We can't, we can't do that. We can't breathe the same air anymore. Um, But you know what? That's why radio drama is, (laughs) is really kind of key. Because here and then, I mean, you're, you're talking about actors in a space. And in this environment, it may be an individual actor recording his or her lines. Um, And then someone else comes in and records their lines and then it's edited together as opposed to them being in the same space at the same time. But, you know, back in the 30s and 40s, when radio drama was the thing, um, you had a similar situation, except that the actors were there at the same time Mm -hmm. with sound effects, uh, artists and with musicians. Now, it, you know, we can do a similar kind of thing, but it's it's a more individual um, take or you're trying to do it through the online online um, portals. Yeah. So it is a little bit different. A lot yeah. different, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's such a um, a new f- thing for, you know, for a performing arts venue for a theater company to be sort of launching into. A, it's really a different medium. Yeah. And so I was, I was so um, thankful to find your book about Richard Durham (laughs) and to (laughs) sort of start to explore a little bit about the incredible programming that he produced and his, his just enormous role in the history of radio drama. Um, How did you first get interested in him? Um. Again, through my love of radio. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've been doing over the last 20, 30 years um, is not just teaching. And that's the the other thing that I think helps my teaching is that I'm still practicing. Mm-hmm. I'm still a producer, writer in media. And so um, I was working as a producer and writer on a Smithsonian uh, radio series. It was a documentary series called Black Radio telling it like it was. And it was a 13-part series for public radio, and it aired on like two, almost 300 stations nationwide, looking at the history of Blacks in radio, on air, off air, you know, and that kind of thing. Ownership, the whole nine yards. And so um, one of the shows, I was responsible for writing and producing five of those those episodes. And one episode looked at radio during the 30s and 40s. Um, the so-called golden age of radio, when radio was as popular as, say, um, streaming and television may be now. Um, It was the medium. And so um, if you go back to the 30s and 40s and you look at radio during that time, um, while people gathered around their radio, just like, say, people may gather around television sets or now their computers, (laughs) computer screens now, um, it was also not representative of the country. Actually, it was because it reflected the same biases and discrimination um, that the country, um, you know, exhibited during the 30s and 40s. So if you heard Black voices during that time, inevitably they were musicians, like a Duke Ellington or Fletcher Henderson, Big Band, or, you know, other musicians who were at the top of their game at the time. But if you're looking at drama, there were very, very, very few Black voices. And inevitably, 
you had white actors portraying black characters, mm. which is what Amos and Andy was all about. But Amos and Andy was not the only example of that. It was just the most popular <laughs> example right. uh, in the country. Okay. And I, I say all that just to say that the show that I was, the one of the shows that I was responsible for producing, um, I was going to look at that area, uh, that era of uh, the time. And I, I, I was like, wow, there weren't that many black dramas. So what is this show going to be about? <laughs> um, and one of my colleagues at Howard said, uh, cause they had interacted with Durham's work a few years earlier. And they said, Oh, well, you need to look at some of the work of this guy named Richard Durham. I'm like, who was that? And they said he was a, a pioneering writer. Um, and producer, and he wrote these dramas in the 40s that were just phenomenal. So again, doing the research and I found out, you know, what he was about and I heard some of the the um, episodes and I was, as I say in the book, I was blown away. Yeah. It was like, wow, this man wrote this in 1948, 49 and 50. And he it wasn't just a drama for drama's sake. It was about black characters, black right. heroes and heroines who, through their lives and their accomplishments, really talked about the whole issue of freedom, justice and equality. You know, some of the things that people are talking about today. Yeah. Um, but he did it in creative ways. So that's how. I was introduced to Durham. And then when I started reading his scripts and listening to his episodes, I was like, wow, <laughs> this, this, this is something else. Yeah. It, it's real. it's it, the, um, the episodes are incredible to listen to. Um, and, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but I'm curious, I, I was thinking about, you know, so he, Richard Durham, um, uh, started not writing plays, but started writing poetry, right? Right, That's, right. And, and, and it was his poetry that got him connected with Langston Hughes. Right. Can, can you talk a little bit about how that, how that connection happened and what their, what their friendship was about? Yeah. Um, it, that's a really pretty remarkable story because, yeah. um, so he was born in 1917, and when he moved um, to Chicago, by the time I guess we're getting into the end of the 1920s, into the early 30s, he's writing poetry. Um, what drew him to poetry, I'm not sure, but he felt that poetry was one of the most creative forms of expression. Mm -hmm. um, and he read all of the greatest poets and all. And, and the other thing about Durham is that he was a bibliophile. He loved reading and he read everything. He didn't just read one type of book or one type of writer. He read as much as he could get his hands on. And so um, poetry was just also part of his um his uh, toolbox. And when he started writing and he, and he got published in the local paper, the local black paper, the Chicago uh, Defender, and I think he even had some poems in the Pittsburgh Courier and others mm -hmm. that he, he, um, he started to get, you know, recognized at least um, among his colleagues in Chicago. Well, um, one of his favorite writers, was Langston Hughes. Uh, not surprising. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. And Langston was a, a key figure 
um, not just in America, but in the world at that time. So uh, to give to give you a sense of his moxie and his the the way he decided he was going to move is um, it was I think in 1937 or 38 he wrote to Langston and he sent him his poems and said these are my po- these are my poems um, would you be willing to critique it now I don't have a copy of his letter to Langston, but what one of the finds and one of the really wonderful finds in in the whole research process was a letter from Langston to Durham. Mm. Wow. And so he writes him back in 1939 and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just getting back to you. Your letter and your poems went with me to California and to Europe and back to California, New York. And I... I did read your poems. I think they show promise. And not only that, but he critiqued the poems in the column (laughs) of of Durham's work. So um, for for this man, this this famous author, to take time for a, a young man who he didn't know. In fact, he didn't even know if he was a man or not. He wrote back and said, "Okay, you, you he his pen name was Vern Durham at the time. <clears throat> And he said, okay, Vern, is are you a man or a woman? <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, well, anyway, so um, so he he critiqued his poems in the in the, the margins, and then he encouraged him to read Wadsworth and, and Dickinson and you know, just to kind of continue to read, even read the Bible for language. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that letter, they became friends. So when Langston would visit um, Chicago, he, Durham, got in touch with Langston and eventually they were, you know, they were good friends. And I think he was almost like a mentor because he was 20 years older than than Durham. Yeah. Yeah. That speaks so much to who Langston Hughes was also. I mean, what a generous um, soul to to be able to you know sort of dedicate that to someone he didn't know at all at all not at all (laughs) yeah that's incredible and I'm sure that that then impacted the way that Durham sort of moved into writing scripts and and the way that his poetry then evolved I'm sure he even said uh, Durham said one time he was interviewed by uh, someone in that uh, Langston wrote, uh, I think, two autobiographies. I know he wrote one. I, I think he wrote a second one. And he was about to write another one, you know, kind of updating his last uh, iteration. Um, and he wanted um, Durham to work with him on it. But he died, Langston died, right before they were going to collaborate. So oh, wow. theirs was a real friendship. I mean, it wasn't just, hey, I know Langston, he knows me. It, they worked on some projects together. Langston uh, recommended him for some writing jobs in New York. So, yeah. We're moving on to Act 2, Places. With top Act 2, Places, Please. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, Durham Path. Uh, to writing for radio, which was so interesting. So it started at the Illinois Writers Project, which was part of the New Deal's Work Progress Administration. Yes? Yes. So what was he hired to do, and and how did that turn into writing radio drama? 
Okay, that's a good question. But it really all kind of stemmed again from his poetry writing. Okay. One of the one of the things is that if you look at the New Deal and the New Deal programs, you know, we know about um, the whole idea of FDR using the New Deal to try to get America back to work, right? So there were um, projects, there were construction projects to deal with bridges and roads and, and that. There were, um, you know, other projects to really um, try to find ways to get people out of the Depression and back into um, economic prosperity. Well, um, what a lot of people don't necessarily know, they may know about the federal theater project, where the, the project that supported theater artists and plays and all. But there was also a writer's project, and the writer's project supported writers not to go out and write anything that they wanted to write, but in each state, particularly in New York, in California, in Illinois, Louisiana, and I, I think a few other states, the writers' projects were there state by state to document life in America or in that state um, during the Depression. Okay. So they they hired these writers, and, and we're talking about writers who would go on, some of who are already famous, but many who would go on to just be phenomenal um, uh, icons in the business. So you're talking about Saul Bellow or um, Nelson Algren mm -hmm. or Richard Wright or mm -hmm. Margaret Burroughs or Margaret Walker. Um, so you have a range of, of writers at various stages in their career who, um, if they were hired by the Illinois, or, I'm sorry, not the Illinois, but by the Federal Writers Project, then their task was to document what was going on in either a city, particular city, or in the statewide um, area. What Durham did was, and one of the requirements was that you had to have been published. Well, he was published. He was a published poet. <laughs> so he could prove, here's, here's a, 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 an example of some of my publications. And I think he also wrote some essays. So that those were published and he could use that. So that gets him into the door of the Illinois Writers Project. And once he's there, um, people like, I'm trying to think, um, Catherine Dunham was also writing for the Writers Project, even though we know her as a dancer and a choreographer. Mm -hmm. At that time, she was part of the Writers Project. And so if you go to the Library of Congress tomorrow, well, maybe not tomorrow, when they open again, <laughs> but if you go to the Library of Congress, you will find um, it, the documentation of people like Dunham and Richard Wright and Algren and all of these major writers who started writing these um, essays, essentially, and some are critiques of life in the city. Um, there's a wonderful example of Richard Wright talking about life on the South Side. And he writes this whole kind of real um, expository uh, essay of what it's like a night, uh, a weekend night <laughs> on the South Side. Um, so you had that kind of thing going on. And Richard was hired to be part of that. And what he wrote about was, um, I think, looking at various aspects of life in the city and, and that kind of thing. But 
what happened was there were different divisions within, this is now the Illinois Writers Project. And so um, based in Chicago, of course, uh, there was a radio division. Again, radio was the medium. And so he happened to one day come in to the uh, main office, which was in downtown Chicago. And um, and he saw this group of men and women sitting around a conference table and they were engaged with each other and arguing and laughing and talking and, and, and really critiquing each other's work. And he walked over and said, well, what is this? And it was the radio division mm-hmm. of the Writers Project. Um, needless to say, he joined in and fell in love. And because he was a radio listener, he grew up listening to radio um, and he knew, um, you know, many of the ma- major figures on radio at the time and the major dramas and comedies and, and variety shows. This was almost perfect for him. Um, and so he joins people like Studs Terkel, who was a writer. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and others. Um, and the, their task was to write weekly. Now this is not once, okay, come up with an idea and write a script in two or three or four weeks. It's like weekly half hour. Well, actually, no, they were either 15 minute dramas because then you had 15 minute pieces, mm-hmm. but they were weekly, um, pieces that these men and women were tasked with developing. And then actors, professional actors from the Goodman Theater mm-hmm. and other uh, other theaters in Chicago would then bring these pieces to life and they would end up dump on the radio. <laughs> so that was his that was his college. That was his school. Um and he loved it. I mean this is this really he fell into it. And he really showed that um, his his dramatic flair, his lyrical sense really did translate into um, writing for the ear. Yeah. Now, I I remember one part in the book, I think you talk about um, his first scripts were not uh, not a huge success. Right. They were they were bad. (laughs) What what made them so bad? He, like any, uh, I, I'm sure if you read some of my earlier scripts, in fact, I know if you read some of my earlier scripts, you're like, what is, this is boring as heck. What is this? <laughs> um, but what made them bad? They were kind of didactic, you know, uh-huh. a lot of talk, um, long sentences. Um, and, and the thing that, you know, we, we say in my department, cause, uh, you know, we're, we're teaching, um, radio, television, film, journalism skills. And so, you know, the thing is you want to sound conversational and his was sounding like someone who's writing for the page and not for the ear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The other thing was he had a gazillion characters <laughs> and this is not television. It's not the stage. Right. You, how do you distinguish between 10 characters who are on, on, I'm not, I won't say on set, but who are on mic, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, not at the same time, but you know, there, so that, yeah, uh, you want to condense the number of characters. You want to make sure that there's a real distinguishing um, characteristic between the characters so that people don't get lost. 
And none of that was evident in his first few scripts. But the wonderful thing about the Illinois Writers Project and the Federal Writers Project in general is that, <laughs> as you know from the federal government, they try to keep track of everything. <laughs> and they did. So that from, um, I guess, you know, every script that was written um, had to be preserved and sent to the central state office, which eventually ended up in the federal um, archives. And so I could see the progression from this is maybe his first script. And then, you know, two weeks later, there was another script. And then a week later, there was this. And you can see over time how they got better. Mm. Plus, plus, you could also see that there were sometimes more than one draft of a script so that you could also see the comments from his editors. Uh, you know, this, is, this goes on too long. Why is this here? <laughs> this, <laughs> this is great. Keep this, that kind of thing. Yeah. Great. That's great. Well, and it, I think at one point in the book, then you talk about, it seems like his script for, um, uh, and I don't know if it was still part of the Illinois Writers Project or not, but um, the script in 1941 that he wrote um, about Goya called The Disasters of War sounded like that was a real turning point in his um, in his script writing. Yeah, you know, I don't know that it was a turning point because, again, when we leave the Illinois Writers Project, which is about in 1941, mm -hmm. Um, he's working on various, uh, other, he's a freelancer working as a script writer for various projects. Um, so not everything was preserved script wise. Sure. Um, but I used that script. It, it was a script about Goya, the, the painter and how he painted one of his famous paintings about the disasters of war. Um, but I use that as an example to show if you look at his early script and the example that I gave of that, and then you look at this one, now you're starting to see he's really starting to get his stride together. He's mm. really starting to figure out how do you tell a story for the ear only and make it interesting and fascinating so people will want to stay tuned. Um what what it also sets up for me after having read so many of his scripts is that by the time you get to the 40s, oh, yeah, he he has mastered what he started in the 30s and then what he started to really kind of coalesce around in the early 40s. And then by the end of the 40s, he's he's really doing uh, a masterful job. One of the things that makes it masterful is that he was a lyrical writer, which actually, again, comes out of his poetic sense. Mm. There are, you know how some writers will uh, describe a scene or describe an action using either metaphors or description that you would never have thought about, but it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that he did. So that's one. Num and number two was, um, particularly as he starts writing his own um, pieces where it, it, he can express his opinions, um, he is political. He is talking about events of the day um, and 
his whole idea was that that you don't that the big man theory or the you know giant man theory is not the be all end all that individuals by their action and by by their um their commitment to issues of justice issues of equality and freedom um can have can make just as much difference in the world as you know some big man theory you know mm -hmm. um and so so there was the political sense and the and the and how he he didn't necessarily throw it in your face um but he found ways over time especially as he developed his craft to to state um his uh political stance without you know knocking you in the face with it mm -hmm. and the other thing was that when, when you get to Destination Freedom, I was amazed that he produced, he wrote uh, at least 90 plus scripts that were weekly, weekly. Weekly. <laughs> Her power. Incredible. That he also had to do the research for. So it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to do a script about... Mm, uh, let me pick a figure. Lena Horne, who was a contemporary of his, they were born the same year, so they were the same age. Um, but, but you know, so so that's somebody contemporary, and he could you know pretty much know what her background was or knew what her background was. At the same time, he was also dealing with Toussaint Louverture and and you know Haiti and and the whole um, Haitian Revolution or, you know, historic figure like um, Denmark Vesey, um, you know, from 1822, who had one of the largest um, slave revolts at that time. It wasn't successful, but, you know, an attempt um, for that. And then just the, the, the way that he organized that particular revolt in South Carolina. So he's doing the research and he's picking these figures, both contemporary and historic, men and women. And he's doing this on a weekly basis and he's finding a way. Now you might think, oh, the only way you can do that is by using a formula. You know, okay, we're going to start, we'll have a narrator and the narrator say, and today we do blah, 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 blah. And then the narrator will take you through this person's life. This guy <laughs> found a way to uniquely approach every single piece. No piece is the same. None. So in one script, he would, he looked at the, the, the history of this this gentleman in Mississippi, he was a, a senator uh, during Reconstruction, um, who was fighting for voting rights in 1875. Mm -hmm. It was actually, I think, a, a Civil Rights Act of 1875. Um, so what does he do? Yes, the story is about this, this senator, but he makes the year the narrator. So the year is going to take you through this man's one year in this man's life. And so it begins on January 1875 with the Ku Klux Klan saying this guy needs to shut up. <laughs> you know, he is pushing this voting rights stuff and we don't need to have this. And then it ends on December 31st, 1875 with his demise and what happens leading up to that. Oh, wow. Or um, 
there's there's a story about um, Jackie Robinson, who in 1948, I think the show was 1948 or 49. Anyway, in 19 when it aired, Jackie Robinson wasn't history. He had just broken the color line in in baseball. And yet, rather than say, okay, this is going to be about Jackie Robinson and let me tell you his history and why he, you know, he is the man in baseball, he decides to have, and Studs Terkel actually was an actor in this. He played, he played uh, kind of the character that takes you through. So he then um, gives you or presents Jackie Robinson's story in rhyme. And Stud's character, Stud's Stud's Turkle character helps to move you through um, Jackie Robinson's story, but it's all in rhyme. And it's called The Rhyme of the Ancient Dodgers. So (laughs) gives you a sense of of what he's doing. Um, One other example I'm trying to think. Let's see. He, um, so... He also looks at the life and the accomplishments of Louis Armstrong, mm-hmm. trumpeter extraordinaire, musician extraordinaire. Um, and, and so we get into his life, not just uh, by uh, having uh, Louis say, you know, I was 10 and I heard this trumpeter play and I just knew that that was going to be. He makes the trumpet the character. <laughs> it's so inventive. Yeah, it's so absolutely inventive. So yes. So he found unique ways to get you into the story and take you through the story and no one story was like another. Wow. Week after week. <laughs> Every week. And so this is the Destination Freedom series. Yes. Um and how popular was it, do you know? I don't know, but, um, you know, there were no, uh, I couldn't find any ratings, but it was popular, particularly, obviously, in the Black community, because there were so few programs like this. Um, Because even in the 40s, there were still white actors playing Black characters. And Amos and Andy was still the top, (laughs) the top uh, comedy Mm. of the day. Excuse me. One of the things that I think helped to galvanize um, as he as his as he became politicized um, was that he was 12 when Amos and Andy um, went on the air in Chicago. It started off off in at a local station in Chicago and then uh, NBC picked it up and, you know, made it national. Um, so, you know, the thing that he said as he got older, he was like, wait a minute, I I grew up in an all-black neighborhood, and I don't know men and women who are like these characters. Uh-huh. I mean, my mother, my father, my uncles, my friends, their their relatives are, you know, getting, not to say that there aren't comic characters in every neighborhood, because there are, but, but the stereotype of the ne'er-do-well, the unintelligent, um, man and woman who just kind of bumbles their way through life is really a stereotype. And so his thing was, okay, Angus and Andy, whatever. But I know that from my background and from my family, his own, you know, background with his, his mother and father, that there are dignified and conscious 
um, men and women who should be featured dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that was what he did in Destination for You. Wow. And, and in such an innovative way. So, wow. So creative. Do, do you have a favorite episode? Not really. <laughs> Not really. I mean, that, that's, that is a good question. And it really just depends if you, if you would ask, well, what are some of the, um, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, I do like some of the episodes where he really just takes you on a whole, like the um, the rhyme of the ancient ancient Dodger, where he, he's talking about the Jackie Robinson, um, the piece about uh, Denmark Vesey is really pretty phenomenal because here you have a man who who threw his winnings in a lottery. Um, is able to buy his way out of slavery. Mm. And then instead of, and he has the opportunity to leave South Carolina and move North and live as a free black man. He decides to stay in South Carolina because he wants to help free his fellow former slaves or not. He, they're not former slaves, but he wants right. to free uh, his people or help to free his people. And so he, he works to organize this revolt and then um, he, at the end of the episode, because he is caught, he the revolt is not successful and VC is caught and he's tried by the state of South Carolina. And the thing that is also pretty unique about uh, some of, of Durham's scripts, and almost all of them, is that he had a really great relationship with uh, librarians in the local branch of the public library there. Mm. And they, they, they had um, the first, and I, she might have been the only one for a long time, um, head a black librarian who was the head librarian of, of that library. Yeah. She established a collection of Negro work, history and books and, and paraphernalia and photographs. And so he was able to go to, her name was Vivian Harsh, to Vivian Harsh and Vivian Harsh's staff and say, okay, these are the men and women I'm gonna be focusing on, what can you find? And they would go into their archives or files and bring out raw data and that's what he used. So he had uh, access to Actual research. He didn't make this stuff up. <laughs> right, right. This was this was clearly coming out of the lives and the uh, experiences of the men and women he focused on, and it it shows that you know that he was able to um, to use that the the data and then find a way to creatively present it. That's amazing. How important that relationship with the library and the librarians must have been, right. you know, to assist with all that research. Um, that's an inspirational in so right. many ways. Right. Um, you point out in the book that Durham retained the copyrights to his scripts. And I, as I was reading that, I was thinking about just how many musicians had their music um, sort of taken from them when it was played on on the radio and they didn't retain mm -hmm. the copyright. Mm -hmm. Was it unusual for 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 a scriptwriter to retain the copyright for Absolutely. a radio? Absolutely. 
Um, and if you also read the book, you'll find that uh, that didn't come easy. He had to sue. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, and I always say that here's a man, a black man in the, by this point, we're talking about the fifties who sues NBC <laughs> because NBC claimed the rights to everything about destination freedom, even though he had created it. He authored it. Um, it was his baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sued. And I don't I don't want to, you know, give away all the details because it is in the book. But he it, it's you sue um, the big man on the block <laughs> and you're you're the little guy. You're you're inevitably setting yourself up for failure. But, um, you know, he stuck with it because this was his baby. Yeah. yeah, and he didn't fail, right? Right. And and didn't he continue? And now I I, I might be not getting the timeline right. Did he continue to have a relationship with NBC after he sued them? Oh no 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 no! no that was the end of it. Oh, he was a person non grata. <laughs> <laughs> okay, clearly I've I've gotten the the timeline mixed up. Yeah, yeah I can see how that probably would not have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's talk about um, other things that Richard Durham did. I, can you talk a little bit about some of the other roles he held throughout his life of, of all the things he did? What do you think was the most impactful? Well, I think they all, um, you know, the thing about a life is that, you know, we, those of us who study a life and write about a life and try to document a life, you know, we may pick some areas or, or time frames that may seem important to us because of we know then what the trajectory of that life has been. But I think at the time, this was a man who was curious, who was highly intelligent. I think his only regret was that um, because he came up during the Depression, he was not able to finish his college degree. Um, Mm -hmm. He went to Northwestern, but he wasn't able to finish um, there. And if he had a major regret on the education side, it was that. Um, But he, everything that he did really... And so even if he wasn't successful at it, it fed into the next thing. So, for instance, back in the by now, we're talking about it would have been the late 40s. It would. Yeah, it would have been the mid to late 40s. He um, with this group of of artists that he became connected with. uh, And we're talking about people like um, Oscar Brown, Jr., who was, you know, who would go on to be a major uh, artist, um, singer, activist, um, actor, um, and 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 many others uh, where they decided that they were going to create a theater group, and they call it the Du Bois, named after W.E.B. Du Bois um, Theater Group, to present plays, both original and ad- adaptations, and and others. Um, anywhere they could in the community. They didn't have a, a home, a, a, a structural home, but they you know, found ways to present their plays in, in 
high school auditoriums or community theater um, uh, venues and that kind of thing. So I think that that uh, writing and dealing with plays also informed when he got into writing uh, Destination Freedom because he knew what it was like to deal with actors on a stage, on a physical stage, uh, you know, and dealing with that one space. And then now you, you're moving into the oral stage <laughs> and then what, what the similarities and differences uh, were with that. So that's one thing. When he, um, <laughs> when he sued NBC and therefore couldn't work in radio and he wanted to move actually, because now we're talking about the 50s, and what was the new kid on the block then? It was television. Right. So he figured, okay, radio is going to be there and it's, it's shifting, but here's this new medium called television. And I want, I could see myself moving into that uh, medium and writing for them. Well, uh, he couldn't work in radio or television <laughs> after he sued the big guy. Um, <laughs> But he took his skills, his writing skills, and he became an organizer and an educator for uh, the Packing House Workers Union of America, which was one of the most, uh, it may have been the most progressive um, workers union in Chicago and, and probably in the country. So he works there. And, you know, as a result of that, he interacts with a young Martin Luther King who comes up from Mississippi <laughs> to raise money for the Montgomery bus boycott. Amazing. So, wow. <laughs> um, and, um, and then, and, and, you know, and you look at his life, th that's one of the reasons why I was fascinated by him and also wondered why no one had written a full-length um, biography of, of his accomplishments. And that is because, you know, he does this, he works for this union, and then <laughs> he becomes the editor of Muhammad Speaks, which is the newspaper of the Nation of Islam. Hmm. Now... His family, some of his family members were like, are you crazy? One, you're not religious. <laughs> you're going to work for the, this, this uh, I don't want to call it a sect, but is it, it's a religious um, discipline or order that had clear ideas about what Black people should do and, what, and that, that we were literally should be a nation within a nation. Mm -hmm. It is not. Um, so uh, they they wondered if he was going to be forced to convert to Islam. He wasn't. But one of the things that that he brought to this was he had also worked earlier in his life as a reporter for the Chicago Defender. So he knew what the journalistic world was all about and what it meant to write for the print, you know, for printed pages, um, and to be a, a journalist. So that going and working as an editor there was also something that he could do. The other thing um, is that some of the, some of the, the, the twists and turns that he took um, in his professional life were in part because, um, <laughs> I don't want to say he burned some bridges, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> yeah. If you can't go back to working in the electronic media, 
then you got to do something else if you're going to survive. And he had a family, his wife and his wife. I, I, I want to digress for a quick second. And that is his wife, Clarice, uh, they were married in 1942 and remained married until he died in 84. And I mean, literally, she just died a, a couple of years ago and two, and she was 98 at the time. Mm-hmm. Wow. And this woman's memory and support was just phenomenal. From the time he died, she really is one of the reasons why we we really do know about him because she kept his memory alive. Mm. Mm. And um, so anyway, so so that was that was that. And um, and he just if so, if a door closed because he was not going to compromise his principles, then he had to go another route. And inevitably he was successful. Now, there were things he was not successful with. Like he tried to to do some money making schemes that his <laughs> wife said, "Well, you know, go back to writing." <laughs> Leave that alone. Um, and and there were things that he attempted to do or said he was doing. Like everybody who I interviewed who knew him said that he should have been as well known as, say, someone like a Richard Wright or a Ralph Ellison, because he had the ability to write novel, write the great American novel, whatever that would have been, you know, from his vantage point, but he never did. And I, I don't know what that was. It could have been that he, um, as he got older, he had some health challenges. It could have been that he, you know, I, I do say that it seems like he didn't have he he was more successful when he had a set deadline. Mm-hmm. So if I know, OK, this is due on this day, this time, he might miss the deadline, but he. <laughs> but eventually he would turn it in. Eventually. In sounds- fact, <laughs> he became the credited ghostwriter of Muhammad Ali's autobiography, The Greatest My Own Story. OK, yeah. OK. So he's traveling the world with Ali and they're going to write this thing and they get this major advance from Random House, the publisher. Yeah. So, you know, they again, they had deadlines. (laughs) Deadline would come, the deadline would go. Nothing. Deadline would come, deadline would go. And his editor, amazingly enough, which was also really phenomenal, was Toni Morrison. Oh, my gosh. What? (laughs) Wow. So Ms. Morrison said that she she would talk to him and he would be like, I'm going to get you a draft whenever, tomorrow or next week. And she was like, just give me something. And at one point, <laughs> it got so bad that her boss was about to say, you know, we need to kick this guy to the curb because he's not producing and and we're spending too much money <laughs> for this book for it not to happen. And Ali had to say, no, uh-uh, no, this is gonna he this is who I want. He's gonna do the job and we'll get it done. And then Tony Morrison had to just stay on his case. Uh. But what she said was that when he did turn in a draft or a chapter or two, it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. What's so his story is is so amazing. And I think you're right to be sort of shocked that that nobody has told that story before. Wow. Um, you know, from being poet, scriptwriter, producer, journalist, 
activist organizer and i think he even like um advised the mayor at the time on his campaign like mm-hmm. all of the stuff that he did is so incredible and so you know it is it is really um surprising that there was not a book before yours but i'm so thankful that word warrior exists um and that that um we're able to find out about him through your research um so, uh, yeah, if people want to find out more, they should absolutely purchase Word Warrior. Well, I I, I, I don't want to keep you all day. I mean, I do want to keep you all day and keep talking because this is fascinating. Um, but I don't want to presume to take that much of your time. So I want to thank you so much, Sonia, for joining us and um, telling us all of this great information, sharing with Richard Durham with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me do this. This was a, a wonderful trip down memory lane and <laughs> and also, you know, a, a, an opportunity to talk about some of the things that are happening. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it for today. We're out of time. Please check the call board for your next call. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. Special thanks to today's co-host, Esther Winter, and to our guest, Sonia D. Williams. You can find episodes of Destination Freedom at archive.org slash details slash Destination Freedom. And you can find this link and more information about Richard Durham on Jiva's blog at jivajournal.wordpress.com. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rickstens. Today's stage manager was Jen Lyons. Find out more about Jiva and our 2021 season at jivatheater.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform or share the podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time where out of the rehearsal hall. We're going dark. <laughs>